Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. You recall last week, uh, and I would encourage you to buckle in. Uh, there's no seat belts on your chairs, but if there were, I would say buckle up, because today's going to be a little different, okay? So if you're new to the fellowship and this is your first time here, uh, it's going to be a little different today, meaning the content, the things I'm going to be sharing with you are, um, uh, can be a little bit challenging, and I'm going to do my very best, and I've had several passes at this over the years, and I, uh, I'm hoping to make it simpler and even add a few things, and each time I get the opportunity to share this uh, passage and, and the significance of it prophetically, I'm learning something every single time, and it, it's really wonderful, because it's, it's, it's alive, you know, and, it, and it's just really wonderful, and I hope that you are, you're encouraged today just to see how God is true to his word, and when he makes a promise and when he prophesies, or when he says something in advance, even several hundreds of years in advance, he's going to bring it to pass. And what we're going to see this morning is really astounding. I mean, it really is astounding. And until the latter part of the 1800s, this passage really wasn't known uh, as far as the prophetic significance of it. But when we look at Daniel's prophecy this morning... And we see what Jesus did and what people who have really looked into this very deeply have discovered. It is really incredibly profound. And to the end, that I hope that it encourages you that God means what he says and he says what he means. And he is spot on. He's always spot on. He's always been on time. He's never lied to us. And, and guess what? He will never lie to you because if you're God... You don't need to lie because you know the truth. You are the truth. He is the truth. So he doesn't need to hide anything. He can tell things in advance with pinpoint accuracy as much as he desires to give us. And to me this morning, this prophecy is just one of those things that I think for the church, especially since uh, the late 1800s, has just been a shot in the arm of the church. Because up until now, you know, it, uh, up until then, it was really kind of dark. N nobody really talked about this specific, uh, the specifics of this prophecy. And so now, as we are living in these last days, and let me define the last days for you. They, the last days began when Jesus died on the cross up until um, his return to the earth, his second coming. And those are defined as the last days. And we are living, I believe, in the end of those last days, based on the things that we see around us. Anybody notice some peculiar things globally, not just in America, but I'm talking about globally, things that are moving and shaking right now that all line up with the scripture. So buckle your seatbelts this morning, because there's a lot of stuff we're going to talk about, and I'm hoping to get it done. And um, it's just really wonderful. So as we've been looking through uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, the kingdom, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God refers to that time on the earth we know when Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years. We know that it's called the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And many Old Testament prophecies and prophets spoke of the time which is still yet future to us, the kingdom of God, the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And just one of them is in Isaiah. And let me just read it to you for the sake of time. And I think you'll, um, if you understand this passage and you read it in its context, you'll know that it's something that hasn't happened yet. It's still yet future to us. And it'll even make sense as we read it. But in 
verse 4 of Isaiah 11, it says, But with righteousness he, speaking of Christ, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his, of his waist. And notice this. The wolf also shall, lie, or shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the goat. Now these are natural enemies, predators of each other, okay? One's a predator and the other one gets eaten, okay? So we've never seen anything like that yet. But the Bible says that there's a coming a time in the millennial reign when the curse will be removed to some or greater extent and, and these things will happen. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And, and on top of that, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. So there's not going to be any more death in the sense of you know, needing to eat meat you know, the carnivores, evidently, they're going to be feeding, you know, along with the, the cows who are obviously herbivores. And the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. How do you like that, moms? Hey, what are you doing, Sally, out in the backyard? Oh, nothing, mom, just playing with the cobra in the backyard. Oh, it's okay, honey, just don't hurt him. Be careful when the hood comes up that you don't bend it, you know, and you know, handle it. And you shall not hurt, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, amazing time yet ahead of us. And so, we've been talking about that. And throughout Matthew, we've been talking about the kingdom of God and how the disciples, they were actually looking forward to this kingdom age and expecting that it would occur in their lifetime. Because remember, the nation of Israel as a whole has rejected Christ. And we'll see that there, there'll be a small remnant this morning as we look at the passage that, that really, un, to some extent, understood that he was the Messiah. Their understanding wasn't completely mature at all, but the, but the nation as a whole had rejected him. And this would be the final nail, if you would, in the coffin for Israel. Because when he would come into Jerusalem, instead of them receiving him as the, the long-awaited Messiah, they, they didn't want anything to do with him. He wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for someone to deliver them from the yoke of Rome. They didn't know that Jesus came to die something even greater than just delivering them from Rome, but to del deliver them from sin and death and hell. And he would die on the cross. They didn't understand it. Even the disciples, even the day they're walking up to Jerusalem, as we're going to look at now, they didn't quite get it. And we are actually awaiting this kingdom, this kingdom of God, this millennial reign, and it's yet future to us. And it seems very probable that had the nation as a whole received Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, his triumphal entry that we're looking at this morning may have ushered in the kingdom that the prophets have been talking about. But because of their rejection, now that kingdom program, if you would, would be postponed. And so let's read the verse 11 verses of Matthew chapter 21. Notice with me in verse 1. <clears throat> now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So I want to share something with you. Uh, This passage that we have just read is uh, really on Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday. That's really the significance of it. And you can see that um, I've laid out before you just a graphic, and I haven't filled this in completely yet. This is just a a working template, if you will, but I put some things on this uh, chart to show you the events of the Passion Week and where they lined up as far as days are concerned. We know that as we look at this, we're talking about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday because they put the palm fronds in front of him as Jesus would go. And this was the first time that Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah. Um, And he would not have allowed it any other time because, remember, we've looked at this before, Jesus' hour had not yet come, but now his hour had come. The time that he would come into Jerusalem receiving praise as the Messiah, and only a few actually comprehended it, but the vast majority of Israel rejected him. We know that. But, um, but this is the first time he did it. And it's in John 6, verse 15, it tells us that when Jesus perceived, and, and this happened right after he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, remember that when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself. There was a right time when he would allow himself to be received as a king, but it wouldn't be until this very moment in history. This very moment. No other time. And this precise moment was something that was prophesied by the prophet Daniel some 600 years before Christ was born. And we're going to look at the significance of that shortly. But this triumphal entry occurred the Sunday prior to his death and resurrection. And Jesus was entering in, again, the final week of his ministry before he'd be crucified, rise from the dead, and then 40 days later, ascend into heaven. And so, and one, one thing to understand is that between chapters 20 and 21 that we're looking at right now, there are five events that, that have already occurred and those five events are, are things that we read about in the other Gospels uh, in the last time we were together, including Jesus' arrival at Bethany and certainly the salvation of Zacchaeus. Those were in other Gospel accounts when we looked at chapter 20. Him arriving at Bethany and then Mary uh, anointing Jesus' feet with a very costly perfume. 
And then the plot to kill Lazarus. So Jesus has already, by the time we get to chapter 21, he has already been to Bethany, and now he's on his way to Bethphage, which is a place, um, I don't know if you can see this, this is a satellite map, but right over here is, uh, let's see if I can find it here, uh, just so you know, because I like stuff like this. Do you guys care? Okay, so I'm going to see if I can find it here. So Jericho is right over here. And so Jesus is going to take this road called the Ascent of Adumim. And he's going to come up and he's going to, and, and Jerusalem is right over here. And Bethany is right here. And Bethphag is right here. Probably a better way to see it is kind of a blown up perspective of this. Um, and that'll help you understand. So let's go back to verse 1 here. So when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, he came to this place called Bethphage, which means the city or town of unripe figs. And he came and it was at the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. In Mark's gospel, it tells us something interesting concerning this cult. It said that he said to them, go into this village opposite you, and as soon as you enter it, you'll find a cult tide on which no one has sat. Has anybody mounted a donkey where no one has sat on it before? Have you ever seen the bucking bronco? That's what it would be like. But, but this is incredible because the Son of God, the maker of all things, he comes and he gets on this colt, this small horse that's big enough to sustain his weight, and, 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 the, and the animal submits to him. It doesn't throw him off. He didn't sit on its mother. He sat on the colt, a gelding, one that hasn't been broken yet. Do you understand the significance of that alone? I mean, that's crazy. If you're from Texas, you know what I'm talking about, Right? And then in verse 3, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And Zechariah wrote this, his prophecy, about 20 years after the fall of Babylon, somewhere around 519 B.C. But there's something in the, the original uh, verse in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that I just want to bring out to you because it's very interesting because it's not uh, listed here in, in, um, in, in Matthew. But the original quote says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. That kind of narrows it down, doesn't it? Only Jesus provided salvation. And Zechariah, back in 519, he had an understanding that this king who would come into Jerusalem would be the one, the savior of the world. Yes, the Messiah, the one that the prophets had told, talked about for hundreds of years. Now, most kings, when they came into a city, they came in on a horse as a conquering general. Titus did that when he burned, Rome, or burned Jerusalem down in 70 AD. He took all the, the treasure temples and he went back to Rome and he drove in on his stallion with all of the, the, the booty and all of the the stuff that he had gotten from Jerusalem, he brought that into, into Rome. 
But most come on a horse, but Jesus came on a donkey, which means that he came in peace, not as a conquering general, as a, as a warrior. But the Bible tells us, right, when Jesus comes, yet future to us, physically to the earth in his second coming, notice what it says. He will come back on a horse, and it will be a bloody mess because he's going to come back with vengeance to exact vengeance upon a world that has rejected his salvation, that has rejected him. It tells us that in Revelation 19, verse 11, John wrote, Now I saw in heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, speaking of Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew for except himself. And he was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Don't you love that? I, I just got to see that with a little bit of a deeper voice, just because it feels better. The Word of God. Come on, guys, ready? The Word of God. Yes, the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's you and I, white and clean, followed him on white horses too. Yes, white horses. Not on UFOs. They come back on white horses. Yes, hallelujah. So the disciples went, verse 6, and they did as Jesus commanded them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, set him on them. Really, it was the colt. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees, spread them on the road. One thing about the ancient Near East is it was customary for them to cover the path of someone who was worthy of highest honor. So this was something they would do for magistrates and kings and people that are important. And even in the Greco-Roman culture of the Roman Empire, the palm branch was a symbol of triumph and victory. It became the most common attribute of the goddess Nike. You know the Nike symbol? That little symbol, that means victory. Nike means victory. And that's what it's all about, because Christ is victorious, right? He's victorious. And then verse 9, the multitudes who went before him and those who cried out. By the way, you, you guys buckled in? Because I'm, I'm going, okay? <laughs> so pay attention and, and buckle your seatbelts, all right? Today only, okay? Then the multitudes who went before him and those who followed cry out, saying, Hosanna, Lord, save now to the son of David, this messianic title. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And obviously, well, it's a quote from the Hillel Psalms. When they would make their ascent up to Jerusalem for the feast, they would sing Psalms 113 to 118. And this was the very last psalm that they would sing. And I love what it says in uh, Psalm 118. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. The very last psalm, perhaps, that they sung as they came up to Jerusalem was this psalm, probably. And they said, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. And that's what Hosanna means. Save now. I pray, O Lord. And O Lord, I, I pray, send now prosperity. And then verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, this psalm written a thousand years before Jesus would be born. Speaking of the very moment that he would come into Jerusalem on the donkey. And it gets even better than this. 
Now, between verses 9 and 10 here in the scripture, I'd like for you to write a reference. And it's Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, because this is where you're going to have to cinch your belt a little bit, okay? Because we're going to move here. Between verses 9 and 10 are events recorded in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, which are extremely prophetically significant. And I want to read them to you because... The other gospel, in Luke's gospel, right at this moment in the scripture, between verse 9 and 10 here in Matthew, this, these verses are inter, interjected into it. Let me read it to you because it will set up what we're going to talk about next. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, Jesus did, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, notice, this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. They shall not leave in you one stone upon another because, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Did, did you hear that? He's saying there's coming a time when it's going to be completely destroyed. Not one stone left upon another because you didn't know this day of your visitation. This day, like in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Now, this occurred in 70 AD. We know that the Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple burnt. And they dragged the stones of the temple and they threw them off into the uh, western, southwestern corner of the Temple Mount. And they are there to this day. And here is a picture of me standing on them. They, they, they don't let you do this anymore. They got little things all around it now. But I snuck up there and I stood on them. They won't let you do it anymore, but there I am. But those stones have been there since 70 AD, folks. It's a testimony of what happened when Rome sacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. They're still there to this day. You can see them. And if you go to Israel, oh, plug, plug, plug for Israel. We have sheets on the counter, by the way. If you want to go in 2024, check them out. You can look at the itinerary and register. Do it, do it, do it. Okay, so anyway, go to Israel with us and you'll see this yourself. And you can see it. It'll bring tears to your eyes just to see the wonderful things of God. But notice in verse 41 back in Luke here, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even this your day. And so even at some point, even after this, chronologically after this, Jesus made this statement, and it's recorded for us in Matthew 23, verse 37. He said to them, to the Jews, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus expected the Jews to know the time of their visitation. He expected them to know the time of their visitation. Now, what's even more remarkable about this, and again, this is going to be review for some of you, and it'll reinforce maybe what you already know. But for those of you who are new to this, hang on, because this is very interesting. This is a prophecy, what Jesus did here by coming in on this specific day, Palm Sunday, 
It was a prophecy of Daniel that he fulfilled to the letter. And everybody else didn't know it. Nobody else knew it. But Jesus did. And he said, why didn't you know that this day was coming? You should have known. You should have been a student of the word. You should have been listening. In this year day, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Let's look at verse 24. We're just going to look at verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, 27. And let's turn there, because this is one of the keys to end-time prophecy right here, in the Old Testament. Everything else, and, and this is what's so fascinating. These verses that I'm going to share with you today, all of prophecy hangs off of these scriptures, and it works really wonderfully. As we, as we have been going through Revelation and all these, all, all these things that I'm going to read to you fall right under this very nicely. And it, it's really beautiful how God did this. And of course he did it because he's God. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he incredibly smart and perfect in all of his ways? Of course he is. We wouldn't expect anything less of the one who made all things to foretell the future. No big deal for him. He knows it. He's outside of time. He looks down on it like a parade. He can see it. He knows, like Psalm 139. I know your thoughts before you even speak them, David. Are you kidding me? You know what I'm going to say tomorrow? Yeah, I know what you're going to say, and you better watch your mouth. Right? And he does. He knows. So look with me at verse 24 of Daniel 9. Notice, and the angel Gabriel came to Daniel. Daniel at this time is a captive in Babylon. He's in the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem has been sacked. They've been taken into captivity in 586 B.C. Actually, I think he went a little earlier, like in 606 or whatever B.C. But anyway, he's there in Babylon now. He's getting to be an older man. And, in, and God reveals this to him by the angel Gabriel, tells him what's going to happen in the end days. Notice, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, meaning the Jews, Daniel, and for your holy city. What is that holy city? You got it. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth, notice this, underline this, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which six, or 62 weeks plus seven is how much? 69, right? The street speaking of Jerusalem, shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, I want to talk to you about this 70 weeks that where he's referring to, this seven weeks plus 62 equals 69 weeks. These are weeks of years. And this whole idea has precedent in the Bible. We know that there is a Sabbath for the land of Israel. They would work six years, and then the seventh would be a Sabbath. So that was considered a year. When we look at the year of Jubilee, we know that the year of Jubilee is seven sevens, or seven years, uh, uh, seven weeks of years. So seven times seven is 49 years. And then on the 50th year, there'd be a Jubilee when they could you know, return back to their lands and everything else. You follow me? So this precedent is in the Bible. 
this idea of weeks of years. Very easy. If we had more time, we could go into more, but if I do that, we'll never finish. We probably won't anyway. So, <laughs> so but let's take a look at God's prophetic calendar. As we look at this, we have to understand a few things. The Jewish and the Babylonian calendars are based on 30-day months, meaning 360-day years. You can look in Revelation chapter 11, chapter 12, verse 6, or 13, verse 5, and if you look at those carefully, you'll understand, and you do the math, it is very obvious that they're dealing with 30-day months. Especially 13, Revelation 13, verse 5, it talks about 30-day months. Do you got it? 30-day months, 360-day years. That's God's way of thinking. That's the calendar at that time they were thinking of. And so if we look at this calendar and we look at this prophecy that we're looking at, so if it's 69 weeks of years that we're talking about from, from the moment that this command is given to restore and to build Jerusalem. 69 weeks of years, if we do the math, 69 weeks of years times 7 years times 360 days in a year, we come to 173,880 days, specifically right to, the, right to the nose, okay? Now let's go back and look at Daniel 9 again and take a look at this. That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, so we got to determine what that is, until, so from that moment, whenever that was, until Messiah the Prince and Jesus came into Jerusalem as the long-awaited King Messiah for the very first time on that Palm Sunday, right? So between this command to restore and build Jerusalem until he came in on Palm Sunday, what the word of God, what God is telling us is that there's going to be 69 weeks of years and specifically 173,880 days. Is that a mind blower? So what command, what, what, what command was it there to restore and to build Jerusalem? Well, there were four decrees that had been identified when the Jews were in captivity. The first one was by Cyrus of Persia. The second one was Darius. And, and the third one was Artaxerxes Longimanus. And the fourth one was by the same king of Persia at that time. And let's take a look at, because only one of these is going to be the beginning of this commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Notice, to restore and to build Jerusalem. Not the temple, but specifically the walls, the gates. Follow me? Did I lose anybody yet? Okay. All right, so let's look at this first decree. We're not going to go into any detail. If, if, you, um, if you subscribe to our podcast... You can get all the notes that I'm sharing up here. You know, just go uh, to Apple or Google and look for uh, Calvary Chapel of Rochester. And when you see this message, there'll be a little thing where you can click and you can download it, all these notes that I'm sharing with you. You can review it for yourself, okay? So take a look at that. But the first of these four decrees is not the one that's speaking of the command to restore and build Jerusalem because this command recorded for us in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 36 in Ezra 1 speaks of rebuilding the temple specifically. Rebuilding the temple. So it can't be that one. The second decree that's been identified is one by Darius. 
And this was, uh, it's recorded for us in Ezra chapter 5 and, and Ezra chapter 6. And the scope of this, and again, read these passages. The, this passage is speaking of rebuilding the temple and then a reiteration of Cyrus's uh, earlier decree with, now with penalties attached to it. And so it's all about the temple. And then the third decree that we see is from Artaxerxes Longimanus in 458 BC. And this is recorded for us in Ezra chapter 7. You can read it, but the scope of it is provision for the priests and the sacrifices and the articles in the temple. So, so far, everything's been about the temple. You follow? But there's only one that speaks of rebuilding the gates and the walls and rebuilding the city itself. And that is the final one here by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. And Nehemiah chapter 2. Um, let me go there really quick. Let me read this to you. Because this one here, i got to read this. And it's, short, it's a short passage. And you'll see that in reading it, If I can find what I'm doing here. Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me just read some of it. And it came to pass, Nehemiah chapter 2, Old Testament, and it came to pass in the month of Nizon, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's Longimanus that we're talking about, when wine was before him, and that I, that I um, Nehemiah is speaking here, that I took wine and I gave it to the king, now, I had never been in his presence, uh, sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick, since this is, this is nothing but sorrow of heart? So I became dreadfully afraid, Nehemiah says, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, it lies waste, and, 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 its, and its gates are burned with fire? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Right? And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, speaking of Euphrates, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and also a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber, notice, to make beams for the gates of the citadel which pertains to the temple, the, the, the citadel uh, around it, for the city wall and the house that I will occupy. Okay, so, and then Artaxerxes gives this command. He gives this command, this pagan king, and this is God at work. They're still in captivity. And Nehemiah, sad of heart, goes in before the king and he's like, what's wrong, Nehemiah? I've, I've known you. You've never come like this. And he's like, well, back, you know, Babylon, they destroyed our, our whole family. I mean, he didn't say Babylon, but they all knew what it was. You know, my father's gates in the city are burned with fire. He's like, what do you need? I'll write you the check. Here's a letter, too. Everybody's got to give you the stuff that you need. I mean, is that crazy or what? Is that God moving on the heart of a king? Hey, believe me. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. That includes our king or our president. All right? Everything is in his hand. 
So let's go back to this prophecy again. Therefore, no one understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, we just read that in Nehemiah, that was by Artaxerxes Longimanus in 445 BC. From that moment until Messiah the Prince, there's going to be 69 weeks of years. Specifically, it's amazing to me how the Bible can be so short and just a little area like this lay on us this huge whopper. And then it takes until the 18th or the late 19th century for us to finally get it. It's amazing. What other mysteries are there? So let's talk about our calendar because all of this math has to fit within our calendar that's known to man since going back to that time. So when we look at this fourth decree given by Artaxerxes to restore and build Jerusalem, it's been identified what that date is. March 14th, 445 B.C. According to Sir Robert Anderson, he wrote a book in 1894 called The Coming Prince. And if this is the decree referred to in Daniel 9.25, and then we go forward from that moment, from March 14th, 445 B.C., if we go forward now 69 weeks of years, which we know is 173,880 days, are you guys buckled in? Okay. If we go forward that amount of time, that brings us to a specific day in time. And what day did it bring us to? When the Messiah, Jesus, came into Jerusalem on April 6, 32 AD. That very moment. That's why he said, this your day. You didn't know it, but now it's hidden from you. Now it's hidden from you. You should have known this. Think of how pinpoint accuracy this is. And think of the, the scholarship. I mean, not to elevate you know, um, Sir Robert Anderson. He was a, a, an investigator for Scotland Yard. So this man was used to dealing with detail. He was an investigator. So he, 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 he looks through all of this stuff. And he had records, and he looked through, and he, he did a lot of stuff. And he did a fantastic, incredible job, what God did, and gave him this understanding and later on, we're going to see this toward the end, there's another gentleman in 1979 who actually revised these dates. The, the math is still the same, and everything still works, but it's just, believe me, when you try to reconcile calendars and leap years and dates and all this stuff, you've got to have access to some pretty high-flutant information. And these guys took it upon themselves to do it. And so this, God didn't sweat about it. He's like, it's going to be, 100, it's going to be 69 weeks of years to the very day. Easy for him. Everyone else is scrambling and their pencils are, and their brains are exploding, trying to figure it out. So this happened on April 6th. And so let's just take a look at the math. So we know that 445 B.C. to 32 A.D. is 476 years. So you take those and you multiply them together and you get 173,740 days. And then from March 14th to April 6th, you've got to count those. There's 24 days. And then leap years, there's another 116 days you've got to add to this to accommodate for the leap years. And again, that brings you to 173,880 days. Look it up for yourself. Don't believe me. i got all kinds of books I can show you. Okay? Look it up yourself. And notice... So Jesus comes in. So from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6, 32 A.D., 173,880 days, 69 weeks of years, told in advance 600 years before Jesus would even come 
to the earth and be incarnate in the Virgin Mary. It had already been told. Does that make, what do you think about that? Let's start over here. What do you think about it? Amazing. What do you think about it? Yes. I love this stuff. Because to me, it it boasts about God. It boasts about his understanding and his all power and his all knowledge. Nobody can undo him. Nobody can outdo him. Nobody can touch him. He's He's amazing. Can everybody say he's amazing? He's amazing. So... Look with me now at uh, verse 26 now, and this gets really interesting because it told us that there were seven weeks of years, and we won't go in there right now, so seven weeks of years and then 62 weeks of years. So Daniel in verse 26, it says, and after, 60, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning literally he would be crucified, he would be killed. That's what it means. But not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, this prince who is to come is speaking of the Antichrist, yet future to us. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 AD, didn't it? Who was it that destroyed Jerusalem? It was the Romans. The people of the prince that shall come. Who is going to be the leader of the revived Roman Empire in the last days, yet future to us? It's going to be this man of sin. They're not going to know him as the beast or the antichrist. They're just going to see him as a really slick politician. Probably look like Gavin Newsom. Some slick guy who's got all the words and, you know, and... Sorry, I shouldn't have said that and defamed him like that. But So after the 62 weeks of years, after that, the people of the... Um, he would be cut off. And did that happen? Did it happen? What happened? He came in, he rode on the donkey into Jerusalem. We know that was Sunday morning. And we looked at the very first um, slide that I had up there of of the Passion Week. So just five or six days later, he would be cut off. He would be crucified. He would be killed. Daniel told us that after that 69th week, that would be the end of the 69th week. Because there's seven years before the 62. So you do the math, 62 plus 7 is 69. But after that, after the end of that 62nd week, he would be put to death. And it tells us that in advance. Amazing. What do you think about that? It is amazing. And the people of the prince who is to come obviously is referring to the Romans who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now that has already occurred in the past. That's ancient history now. But then in the very next verse, in chapter, in verse 27 of Daniel, he leaps forward to even a place that we haven't got to yet. It's called prophetic perspective. Sometimes there'd be, the Lord would give to a prophet certain vision of things, and then there would be a great valley of time, but the prophet continues speaking of things that are happening here at the end times, and in between all of this is what we would call the church age, the, the age that we live in now. And so Jesus has already been cut off at the end of that 69th week, and now there has been this um, period of time, the church age, and it's going to finish when the Lord comes back for the church in the rapture, right? And then Daniel's 70th week, because we talked about 70 weeks, 
the very last week of years, that Daniel's 70th week, the week of years, the last seven years before Christ will come back to the earth, it will begin. It will begin, and it will be a wrath upon the earth. It won't be a, and if you're a believer here, you won't see that. It's a time called Jacob's Trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. It's also called the Great Tribulation. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24, 21. A time of unparalleled destruction and wrath of Almighty God upon an earth that has rejected his Son. That's what that time is about. That's what that 70th week is. And he, notice, so verses 26 happened finished in 70 AD, and now we look at verse 27 in Daniel, and now we're catapulted all the way to a time that hasn't even occurred yet in the tribulation period when this man of sin will make a covenant with Israel, and then, and the covenant we believe may be the, may be the ability to rebuild their temple, because right now there is no temple on the Temple Mount, Follow? It was destroyed in 70 AD. They want to rebuild their temple again. And then once that, that, um, that covenant, that this man of sin, because he here in the, in the verse here is referring back to the previous verse of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is speaking of the Antichrist. The man of sin. So he is the one who's going to make a, some kind of agreement with the Jews. And it's at that moment when they, make that, when they sign that treaty, sometime yet in the future, after the church has been removed, the 70th week of Daniel will commence. It will begin right at that treaty. And then you can almost follow Revelation 6 through 19 and just read it. And the people who are alive in that, in that time will be able to open their Bibles and understand what's about to happen. Think of how crazy that would be. Unbelievers, people who have rejected Christ all their life, and now they're starting to remember what you know their aunt told them about the rapture and all this other crazy stuff that we're talking about. And then they pick up their Bible and they start reading in Revelation chapter six, and they're going, "Well, this is the this is what's on the program. I can tell CNN what's going to happen next. The day before it happens, I can tell Fox News. I can tell them all what's going to happen before it happens." And it will happen. Because God said it's going to happen. He's never lied to us. Now, and again, that final seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, is yet future to us. Follow? Hasn't happened yet. It'll happen when, the, when this man of sin, when this prince who is to come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, meaning a week of years. That's seven years. And in the middle of that week, and, and other scriptures, you know, we could spend another session on this, but in the middle of that week, he, the, this man of sin is going to set up an image of himself, and that's when the Jews are going to realize, oops, they're putting their faith in the wrong guy. They don't think Christ has come the first time, but when this guy comes, they're going to think he's the Messiah. Do you follow? So they're going to embrace him. And plus, he allowed us to build our temple. No one's been able to do that. And now we have it. This guy's got to be the Messiah. And then right in the middle of that, that seven-year period, at the three-and-a-half-year you know, mark, he's going to set up an image of himself. And it tells us that, right? 
Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven-year period, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he shall bring an end to the Jews' sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. And, and, and um, uh, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians tells us that he is going to place an image of himself. Maybe it's an AI image of himself. And, he, and the false prophet is going to force the whole world to worship the beast. I'm sure he won't be called the beast. He'll probably be called something else. But that's what the Bible calls him. And the whole world at that time, after the church has been removed, they'll get the stamp on their, on their hand and on, or on their forehead or else they won't be able to buy or sell anything. That technology has been around for years now. And it's happening. You, you've seen the videos I've shared with you in Sweden, how they have chip parties. I mean, it's already there. People are putting chips in their hands and they can go, you know, go to their Tesla and go like that against the door and the door will unlock. You know, they can go up to a vending machine and go boop and press you know, Pepsi and it comes out. They can go to Wegmans and they can just scan their thing over there uh, against the, the reader and it automatically picks it up. These things are old news now. So the technology is now. It's happening. It's never happened in history, by the way. We've never had the, the, the technology to do what the Bible has been telling us for a few thousand years now, right? But now we do. So what do you think about that? Is it coincidence? Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's just coincidence. No, it's not coincidence. The God who spoke it is telling us in advance. Now, are your ears, are, going to be, are they going to be dull and not listen? And I'm not speaking to you because most of you know, but I'm, there's people that are seeing this or are going to hear it later. You've got to understand, this is the God of all, the God who loves you is telling you in advance. What is coming? Why? Because he loves you. He doesn't want you to go through that time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. But let me tell you that if you're not a believer in Christ, when Christ comes back for the church in the rapture, then you will spend, you will go through that time. And it doesn't look good for you. Is it possible? Yes. But it's going to be incredibly difficult. The, the, the delusion upon the earth, you think it's bad now? When the church is removed, the delusion is going to be incrementally, exponentially ramped up to the nth degree, and everyone's going to go, people are going to try to die. They're going to try to commit suicide, and their soul is not going to leave them. That's what the Bible says. That's how bad it's going to get. Save yourselves. And, and, and I, you can't save yourself, but, but get saved. Receive Jesus. These things ought to alarm you. They ought to inform you, but frighten you. If you're not a believer, you should wake up. Because the Lord of heaven, the one who created, the one who spoke all of this in advance for us, he is the one who loves you dearly. And it doesn't matter what you've gone through. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. Just come to Christ. I beg you. The time, folks, is getting so short. Forget about politics. Get your heart right with God. I mean, granted, I'm, I'm a patriot. You know me. You've heard the whole story in my little delusion and crazy thing. I'm still a patriot of our country. And yes, it's worth saving. And yes, do everything you can. However, what is more important, the salvation of our country or the salvation of, our, of, of souls? I think one trumps the other, no pun intended. Okay? One is more important than the other. The saving of a soul so regardless of who you're speaking to, share the truth. Get the gospel out there. The time is short. We don't have much time left. I know this is alarming. Yes, I'm getting a little excited. And it's worth getting excited about. It's worth getting excited about. 
Now, I want to end by saying a few things here because I want to be fair. There has been recent scholarship um, that seems to correct these dates, you know, the March 14th, 445 to April 632 AD. It's still the same amount of time, 173,880 days. That that will never change. But when you go back, and and I haven't done this myself, but as I've read through, you know, Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince, when you read through that, my goodness, it is very technical. There's a lot. You, you can't just sit down with your Bible and figure this out. You've got to have access to, like, the Naval Observatory maps and, and calculations. You need to have your act together and find out a lot more than what we're, you know, the average person is exposed to, and it takes a lot. But there has been recent scholarship since 1894, when Robert Anderson put this out, in a book by Harold Honer, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but he's an he's a, he's a incredibly intelligent man, obviously a, a believer and a, a Bible scholar and teacher, Harold Hainer. Um, it's a book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Jesus Christ, and it was written in 1979. And evidently, he has corrected some of these errors in the dating of Sir Robert Anderson's. But the days are the same. When the command was given is not disputed. When Christ came back, or you know, and when he came in on the donkey, that is not changed. It's just the math and the, the dates in between, follow? And so I just want to say that because there are going to be some books that you may read that will share that, these different dates. And I just want to tell you quickly what they are. And it's in this book um, up here. There's only one of them. There's not a second edition. This is the first edition, written in 1979. And basically what he does is he goes in and, and basically starts um, that, uh, that command from Artaxerxes Longimanus. He puts that at the date of March 5th, 444 B.C., and then Christ's triumphal entry at March 30th, 33 A.D., okay? So there's just a difference in days there because he, evidently he's corrected it. I haven't been able to determine. And it doesn't really matter to me, honestly, which one of these two brothers are correct. Or maybe there is something else that no, somebody hasn't discovered yet. But the exact dates don't really matter. The fact is, is they know when the command was made, they know when it was terminated, and there was an exact amount of days. And man will figure that out, but God already told us how many days it was. So I don't really, I'm not really concerned about the accuracy. Does that make sense? And neither should we. And it's also in this book by Josh McDowell called A Ready Defense. This is a really great book, and in that he takes Harold Hayner's dates as being more accurate than uh, Sir Robert Anderson. But either one of these two uh, groups, these camps, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, I've memorized the dates from the earlier one, and I'll probably just continue to use that uh, until I'm more concerned about it myself. But So as we read these things, it is quite amazing, isn't it? And, and that's what Jesus said. And notice the very last two verses of our time together this morning in verses 10 and 11. Quite an interesting journey it's been this morning, hasn't it? <laughs> a lot of information here, but you, again, most of you have been exposed to this a couple times. And let it encourage you. And let it challenge you 
that if these things are true, and God is this accurate in everything that he does, and of course he is, then what's holding you back? What's holding you back this morning from giving your heart completely and unreservedly to Christ? Even as a believer, you know, you may have been a believer for many years and now you're getting older and, and, and maybe the, the, the light is growing a little dimmer, you know, and you're starting to wonder, you know, is this really what it's all about, you know? I want to encourage you and, and, and I hope this morning is just a little injection in the arm, not a, not a vaccine, but just a, an injection in the arm to encourage you to believe in your God. To believe in the one who loves you, who's done it all for you and shown you in advance things to come. And that ought to provoke a response. Even for the believer, it ought to provoke us to say, Lord, I've been playing church for years. And yes, I'm one of your children, but I've allowed the world to just kind of water me down. And now I just, you know, I go to church sometimes. I, you know, sometimes I'll witness. Sometimes I'll share the gospel with people. But for the most part, I'm just kind of living my life and doing my job and coming home and, you know. And the Lord's like, I want to use you. Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be revived? Isn't that what the church needs today? Not only us, and myself included, I need to be revived. I, because this world, everything in it is, is, is designed to water down these truths that I'm sharing with you. It's designed to get you away from the simplicity, and actually this is quite complex, but the, the, the simplicity of the truth of the gospel. It's all trying to get you away from that. Our colleges and universities are steering kids away from the truth. They'll teach them anything but this. It's banned. You can't have it in the school. But you can talk about gender indoctrination and mutilation. That's okay, but we don't want Jesus, the one who created all things. Shame on them. They better turn. They had better turn. But what about you? This morning, Christian, for the Christians, rededicate your life to Christ. Rededicate your heart to Christ. We all have a, the world has a way of getting us lukewarm. It wants to water us down and get us to where we're no longer, we, our flame is just like this. Hey, why don't you ask God to blow on that flame and bring it back up again? Not in some kind of false bravado and, you know, fakeness. No, just a fervency, a love for God and a love for people and a love for his word. And when you do that, your life is going to be different from everybody else. And pretty soon they're going to be like, what is it with you? And you can say, it's Jesus. That's what happened to me, is Jesus. So that's, a, that's my encouragement for the church this morning, is to let this kind of give you a little shot. And for those of you who are maybe are here this morning or will hear this message and, and you don't know Jesus, now is the time. You don't have tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow lies. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You have now. You have right now to respond. And I would encourage you to do it. I'm not afraid to do this. I've never done it before, but if you 
are here this morning and you've never received Christ, would you come down right now? If, if you haven't received Christ, if, if you're wondering about all this, and don't worry, if nobody comes, I know that most of you are saved, so that's fine. I don't have a problem. This is not about me. This is about you. The Lord says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the angels of God in heaven and before my Father. Are you in that place where you're like, I, I, I've never received you? If you've already received him, there's no need. But if, you have re- if you've not received Christ, come down right now. We'll pray for you right now. Amazing. Oh my goodness. What's your name, sweetheart? I remember. That's right, Naomi. Yes. Yes. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for Naomi. And I thank you for Lord for giving her the strength, Lord, the, the willingness, Lord, to honor you in front of everyone here. Lord, to just and we pray for her, Jesus. We pray that you, you've already touched her life, Lord. You've already given her a heart. And you've already touched her, Jesus. And we pray that you'd follow through right now and just plant your spirit deep within her. Lord, that she would be a child of God. And then going forward from this moment, Lord, she would know that she's forgiven, that she's saved. And Lord, if she was genuine, and I believe she is by the tears on her face, God, that you have touched her. And we pray, Jesus, that you would keep doing it, Lord, that you'd bless this young lady and that you'd pour out your spirit upon her and protect her, Father, from all the things that would seek to discourage her from her walk with you, Lord. So we thank you, Jesus, for her. And Lord, we ask that you would just fill her right now. And Lord, I believe you did that before she even walked up because the transfer from death to life had already happened. So we thank you and we praise you for what you're doing in her life. Lord, how awesome you are. Lord, bless your daughter and bless your son here too, Father. Bless her, Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 (laughs) My goodness. That's what it's all about, right? That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Yeah, let's stand. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for what you did in the life of Naomi and and, and others in this room, maybe, Lord. If there's a willing heart that didn't come forward, Lord, you're not going to reject them. But Lord, there's something about just publicly saying, I believe and I'm identifying right now with Christ. And Lord, bring salvation to this church for those that don't know you and for those in earshot of this message, Lord, do the same. And Lord, we thank you for just revealing to us through these servants of yours, Lord, I think of Sir Robert Anderson and I think of this Harold Hayner, Lord, these men who just love you and have devoted their lives to uncovering the secrets, Lord, that have been secret for hundreds of years. And Lord, in these last days, as Daniel said, knowledge will increase 
in the last days, and, and it certainly has, and this is a result of that, we believe. Lord, would you bless and encourage your church today, all of us here. Lord, we love you, and you are, you are the greatest of all time. You are the goat. You are amazing, Jesus. We love you, and we thank you, and we praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.